Well, I won't be like the man who got muddled up. When he was uh, commended for something, he answered by saying to the congregation, uh, I don't appreciate in the slightest your good wishes, but I do deserve them from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your good wishes. I couldn't want a better service than this morning to start my 80th year. Now, I want you to turn, please, with me to uh, the Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 4, and verse 4. And notice very carefully uh, two things in these verses. Galatians 4, verse 4, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And then verse 6, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, so that you might call the spirit who calls out Abba Father. I want you to notice these two things. God sent his son and then it says God sent the spirit the two sendings or the two missions now two years ago just about this time I was in California on a tour and it was hot it was very hot it was hotter than I'd ever known preaching on any Sunday it was a hundred degrees uh, high up some place where I was preaching and the, uh, that, uh, that, that was in the morning in the evening we had to go and preach at another place on a lower level they said it's hotter down there I said oh no please when we got there there was the building very nice building and we were met by a steward at the door who said well the temperature is 102 down here and I'm sorry to tell you that the cooling system has broken down in the building and it's so crowded that people can't get in I thought oh no and when we entered the building there in front of us was a great big motif on a board with the, with the words blood and fire well I thought that about finished it 102 uh, cooling system broken down and now it's blood and fire well, you know what blood and fire stands for, don't you? The motif was the Salvation Army motif because it was a Salvation Army building we were, they, we were meeting in. Blood and fire. Now, I wonder why the Salvation Army took that motif of blood and fire. What did they found it on? It only appears once in the scriptures in Acts where it says that God will show signs and so on, uh, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. But I think they took it because General Booth was a man sold out of the gospel and he believed people needed cleansing by the blood of Christ but they were also sold out on the fullness of the spirit and so the blood spoke of the redemption in Christ Jesus and the fire spoke of the Holy Spirit now there's a strange saying of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 12 where he says I have come to send fire on the earth well, we assume that's the Holy Spirit. He's going to send at Pentecost. 
And he said, how am I restrained until it be fulfilled? In fact, he was waiting for that to happen. But he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I restrained until that's fulfilled? Now what's the baptism he's talking about? Well, it's the cross. So he says, I've come to send the fire of the Holy Spirit, but first of all, there's got to be the baptism of suffering and death in the cross. So I want to speak this morning on the relationship between the cross and the Holy Spirit. Because one of the things one feels deeply is we need balance. All of us need balance, I do. So easy to become unbalanced, and in case you think that balance means stagnation, may I remind you that most progress is through balance. Whether it's walking or running, or driving a car, or flying in an aircraft, whatever it is, it's always balanced. Tipping one way, then the other, and that's how you go forward. And we may tip one way, and we may tip the other. But if we balance up, we go forward. And we need to balance the cross and the Holy Spirit. You see, there is no cross without the... There's no spirit without the cross. There's no Pentecost without, first of all, Calvary. And no experience of the Holy Spirit that is really valid without first the cleansing of the blood of Jesus in the heart. And this runs throughout the Bible. So I want you to take particular notice this morning as I try carefully to go through and show you some of the areas where the cross and the Spirit are balanced with one another. Can't take them all because there are too many. But I want to pick some from here and there. First of all in Israel. Will you turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. It's the Passover night. They are to take some of the blood of the lamb that they killed and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames where they eat the lambs. And then verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. There won't be any judgment in your home. Okay. Now turn over to chapter 13, the next chapter. And the Lord leads them out of Egypt on that night, where they take the blood of the Lamb, put them on the, all their homes. And uh, he leads them out and... Verse 13, God led the people and Israel went up out of Egypt. Verse 21, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day and by night. Notice, when they took the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of the lintels, they were able to go out and a strange thing happened, a pillar of cloud and fire appeared and began to lead them. And this was the presence of the Lord. Now in Isaiah chapter 63, three times in that chapter we are told that that pillar of fire and cloud was the Holy Spirit. 
Isaiah strangely refers to God leading them through the wilderness by his, by his cloud and fire and then it talks about they grieved his Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit went before them to give them rest. So it is assumed that that pillar of cloud and fire was an Old Testament representation of the Holy Spirit. The reason being that the Holy Spirit is the presence of God with his people and the pillar of cloud and fire was the presence of God with his people in the Old Testament. But notice that no pillar of cloud without the blood. No pillar of cloud and fire without the blood. Now turn over to chapter 25 of Exodus. Uh, because from that time onwards God began to lead them out and uh, there had to be a focal point of his presence. And it was the tabernacle that they were told to build. But there had to be a focal point in the tabernacle where God's presence was. We're told that that pillar of cloud and fire seemed to be over the tabernacle. And it led because the glory of God was there. But in Exodus 25:22, we read that they were to make an atonement cover, verse 17, an atonement cover. What is an atonement cover? It is a, it is a slab where the blood of the sacrifice is put for the forgiveness of the sins of the people every year on the Day of Atonement. And uh, verse 22, there above the atonement cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony, I will meet with you. So the focal point of God's living presence in the camp of Israel as they went through the, the wilderness was that atonement cover where the brilliant light, what's called the Shekinah of God's presence shone over that mercy seat and the pillar of cloud and fire went up over the tabernacle and led the people. Now it's interesting that many years later Solomon built a temple that took the place of the tabernacle. We don't know what happened to the tabernacle, it disappeared. But a temple took its place. The temple was very elaborate and it was built on the pattern of the tabernacle. Same structure and building uh, and, 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 and rooms. In front of the, of the, of the uh, temple was a great altar, much bigger than the one that had been in front of the tabernacle for sacrifices. And in the uh, Holy of Holies in the temple there was this mercy seat. It was all a similar pattern. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we read how the temple was dedicated and opened by Solomon. And he, the first thing he did was sacrificed an enormous number of sheep and cattle on this huge altar before the temple says in chapter 5 and verse 6 sacrificing so many sheep and cattle they could not be recorded or counted because just like Solomon he always did things in a big way whether it was marriage or religion or whatever it was so he had to have a huge sacrifice but there's a point the greatness of Solomon's sacrifice always speaks to me of the greatness of the sacrifice of Christ it is no petty puny thing that Jesus did when he died upon the cross 
He paid an enormous price. He gave a tremendous sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And that's the meaning of the type of Solomon's great sacrifice. But that was the first thing. And then we read in verse uh, 14 of the same chapter that um, the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their sacrifice, their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. So that fire, that glory, that light came upon that temple when that enormous sacrifice had been offered. No glory without first the sacrifice. See the principle? Runs all the way through in Israel. But now um, there came promises of the Holy Spirit mainly through the prophets. And Isaiah again and again uh, promises the day will come and God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh on your sons and daughters he will pour it out on the Messiah the promises of the Holy Spirit and this time uh, the promises are not concerned with uh, types of the Holy Spirit like fire uh, as, as we've been looking at they were an actual promise not symbols of the Holy Spirit shall I say but actual living presence of the Spirit that is to come into the hearts of people now, of course, that happened in the early days among certain people. David was anointed with the Spirit. Prophets had the Spirit. But it wasn't open for the general public, as it were. But the promises in the prophets say the coming a day when the Holy Spirit will be given not just to kings and prophets and priests, but to all people who believe. And it will be not an outward sign of fire, but an inward presence in the hearts of people. And this was to come under what is called a new covenant. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A new day is going to dawn under a new covenant when the Holy Spirit will be put within people, not just upon them. And this is particularly mentioned in uh, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So we look at Ezekiel 36, shall we? Remember Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 is a promise of this new covenant. In Ezekiel 36 we read this. Verse 24. God says, I will take you out to the nations, the countries, bring you back into your own land. That's for Israel. Now listen. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take away from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you or motivate you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Now this is a promise to Israel but we know it's for Christians as well because it is quoted in the New Testament of the new covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. We've been celebrating the Lord's table here and drinking the blood of the new covenant. So we're under this new covenant. What is this new covenant? Well, it is three things, notice here. Cleansing, a new spirit, a new heart, 
and the Holy Spirit put within us. Let's look at it again, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. That was a ritual. So the first thing is to cleanse us from all idols and impurities and iniquities. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. But following on that is 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in it, a new disposition. Isn't that lovely? Not a hard heart now, an unbelieving heart, but God is going to give us a soft heart, a responsive, believing heart. He does that when we are born again. And he goes on doing it. Sometimes I get a bit of a hard heart, but the Lord cleanses and takes it out, gives me the soft heart. And then in 27, and following on that, I will put my spirit in you and will motivate you to follow my decree. So you won't have to keep the law of God by, by ritual and learning and striving. You'll want to keep the law. Like the little boy who was converted, when I asked him what difference it had made that he, Jesus had come into his heart, he said, well, before, before I asked Jesus in my heart, my parents were always trying to make me be good and I didn't want to be. Now Jesus come into my heart, they don't have to make me be good, I want to be. That happened to you? That's what the Holy Spirit does. It motivates us to do the will of God, to want to be good, to keep his laws. But notice the point here in this new covenant, there is cleansing first, then the change of the attitude and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Cleansing, faith and brokenness and humility, the Holy Spirit. Now this new covenant is to come when Jesus comes. So we'll pass over to Jesus now, shall we? He is the Messiah, and he is the mediator of the new covenant, and he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. Because Isaiah said, the Messiah, when he comes, will be anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus was. But where was he anointed with the Holy Spirit? Anybody tell me? Where was Jesus when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit? That's right. So turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. That was a downward go. Galilee was high ground. Jordan was the lowest point on earth. Did you know that? Nothing lower than the Jordan. Great, great rift. The Jordan. Jesus came from the high ground of Galilee to the lowest point of Jordan. What to, to be baptized by John. Now, this baptism was a humiliating act. Partly because it was an immersion in water and whether it was very clean, we don't know. It was Jordan. But furthermore, it was crowded with wicked people who were coming to repent. Publicans and sinners would flock to John's preaching. And they all wanted to be baptized to show they were repenting, wanting their sins forgiven. And here is the very Son of God who doesn't just come from Galilee, but comes from heaven itself to this lowest place to stand among these sinful people 
And if you'd been standing on the banks, you'd have said, as you looked at him, oh, there's another sinner coming. I wonder what he's been doing. And he's the son of God. But he's not ashamed and not afraid to go and stand among sinners. And to be baptized. When John remonstrates with him, Jesus says, it must be like that to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to do the will of my Father to the bitter end. And this act of baptism in water only presages my ultimate baptism in death at the cross, which is what I came from heaven to do. And so I've got to go through this water baptism to show my spiritual baptism in death and atonement. And so John baptizes him. And then we read that as soon as Jesus came up out of the water, verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice came and said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God was so pleased with Jesus, because Jesus was willing to go into Jordan to do his will. That's the cross. But the Spirit came when Jesus was willing in the type of the baptism to take the, the cross. Then the Spirit came. And uh, John the Baptist, when he saw him, he said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus goes into the Jordan as the Lamb not as a lion or anything else, but a lamb going to slaughter. And John recognizes it. He says, here's the lamb of God who's going to die for the sin of the world. And that's from the lamb that the dove came. Then if you read Roy Hessian's book, Calvary Road, and you want to read my Calvary Road, which has come out now, in that book, Calvary Road, it's a wonderful book, he has one chapter called The Dove and the Lamb. And it brings out there that the dove of the Holy Spirit came on the Lamb who was to be sacrificed the cross of the Spirit now it's read, we read then of course that from that time Jesus went up and he went in the power of the Spirit oh what power he had power to teach, power to preach power to do miracles he had the power of the Spirit and although he had the Spirit in his life he always had the cross in his heart we know that because he was always talking about the cross. He showed the disposition of the cross when he washed disciples' feet, when he went and touched lepers who no one would touch, when he said, I am meek and lowly of heart, learn of me. That was the cross. He didn't strut about and say, I am in the power of the Spirit, look at me, follow me, I am a great person, not a bit of it. He said, I am meek and lowly of heart. And he talked again and again about the cross. He said, I came to die. Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. So he had the, the Spirit in his life, but he had the cross in his heart always. And because the cross was in his heart, he was ready to go to the cross. That was Jesus. And so, no wonder he said this, this, this verse I've already quoted, uh, Luke 12. He said, uh, I came to cast fire on the earth, but first I have a baptism with which to be baptized before I can send the fire. 
Now, in uh, John chapter 7, he speaks about the Holy Spirit. And he says to uh, a crowd of people assembled on a, a day of a feast, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He's appealing to their spiritual thirst. He says, He that believes on me, as the Spirit has said, out of him shall flow rivers of living water. And then it adds, this he spoke of the Holy Spirit. And that people who are thirsty can drink of Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit and out of their lives will flow the living water of the Spirit. This he spake of the Spirit, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. People forget that part of the verse. We talk about the thirsting and the drinking and the flowing but the last part is important. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We've been singing about Jesus as Lord this morning. And it was when he was glorified, he went to be Lord that the Spirit was given. But in John chapter 12, when Jesus is facing the cross and crowds are coming around him and all kinds of fuss going on but Jesus is facing the cross he says now shall the son of man be glorified and the disciples might uh, begin to look up jump for joy and say oh yes now the kingdom's going to come he's going to sit on the throne and he doesn't he says straight away except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die it abides alone but if it dies it'll spring up and bear much fruit and that is the way I'm going to be glorified I will be glorified by going to the ground and dying and rising again and reproducing my life in an innumerable number of lives through the Holy Spirit and the glory of Jesus came through the cross Jesus was glorified because he had first been crucified and there was to be no glorification without crucifixion. In fact, he regarded the cross as his glory. Now shall the Son of Man be glorified and I, if I be lifted up on the cross, will draw men unto me. So the glory of the Lord Jesus was the way, was through the way of the cross. So that was Pentecost. Now Pentecost we read of in the Acts of the Apostles. And in uh, chapter 2 we read the day of Pentecost was fully come. There came the tongues of fire from heaven, lighted upon them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to think, what sort of people were they upon whom the tongues of fire came? Were they great people, important people, successful people? Were they people who say, well, we are worthy to receive the Holy Spirit because we have done this, that and the other? Not a bit of it. They were all a bunch of failures. They were people who in the last moment had run away and forsaken Jesus when he was to be crucified. One of them had denied him, another had betrayed him, another wouldn't believe he was alive again. They were all a bunch of failures. They were broken people, needy people, people who had to repent. What a lot of repentance they had to go on in those ten days before Pentecost. 
sorting things out with one another. Their doubts and their fears and their suspicions and their rivalries all had to be brought to the cross and repented of. So that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. And the only way you can be of one accord is not having the tongues of fire necessarily, but coming to the cross and repenting. It's in a repenting fellowship where we put things right with one another that we become of one accord. I know a certain fellowship in England, which would be nameless, which is tremendous, tremendous vision, tremendous work. And uh, they had this vision that they were going to be used greatly to bring uh, revival to England. And they were going, going ahead and then all of a sudden everything seized up on them. They got spiritually stuck, no progress, they got distressed, they didn't know what to do. So they called a weekend of prayer and fasting find out what is wrong with our fellowship why are we not moving forward and as they prayed and fasted the Holy Spirit began to work among them and showed them that all sorts of things had gone wrong in a subtle manner they hadn't realized it suspicions, doubts, fears, jealousies all kinds of things had come so the, the weekend of fasting and prayer turned into a weekend of deep repentance and putting things right with one another and the result was the Holy Spirit began to work again at the end of the weekend, he had filled them all and they were filled with zeal and vision going forward again. And in the, their magazine, the leader wrote this. We thought that we were going to go out to evangelize our district from Pentecost. We found we had to go back to Calvary to discover Pentecost. That was a very significant remark. We thought we were going to go out from Pentecost we found instead we had to go back to Calvary. So I emphasize again, you don't go out to Pentecost unless you're prepared to go back to Calvary. Well, they went out and they preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, changed them and empowered them. Peter preached this mighty sermon on the day of Pentecost of the Lordship of Christ and so on. And uh, one question came back to him from the thousands that listened. What must we do? What must we do? Well, how would you answer that question? You preached and a thousand people asked them what you must do. You'd have a lot of things you'd tell them to do, wouldn't you? Peter only had one thing to tell them. He said, repent. That's what you need to do. You need to repent. Repent of what? Repent of your wrong attitude to Christ. You haven't acknowledged him. You haven't received him. You haven't loved him. And you know, whatever you repent about, and we have to repent about a lot of things, don't we? However small, at the heart it comes back that I need to repent that my attitude to Jesus isn't all that it ought to be. If I loved him with all my heart, if he was always before me, if I was always keeping close to him, my life would be beautiful. It's so different. So they had to repent. And then he said, and be baptized. Now why be baptized? Well, Jesus was baptized. So why shouldn't all those who believe in him be baptized? And if you're not baptized this morning, as a believer, you want to think, why am I not? Jesus was baptized. Some woman who wouldn't be baptized, I think it's most unbecoming, she said most unbecoming to go down in that water and be splashed in and, and, and lifted up again in front of people. Most unbecoming. 
Somebody said it wasn't unbecoming for Jesus, it was becoming for him. He said that, he said, it becometh me, he becometh me to fulfill all righteousness. And so if it was becoming for him, it should be becoming for you. And you say, well, I don't want to be baptized, why should I? Jesus didn't say that. He said, I will be baptized. And so Peter said to these people, be baptized. Now what's this, why be baptized? Not only because Jesus was baptized, but because in baptism you are going to submit to Jesus as Lord. You are going to repent of sin and submit to Jesus as Lord. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he said. What is the name of Jesus Christ? He's Lord. And when you are baptized you confess, Jesus is Lord. And you do it verbally and you do it publicly. And every Christian should be willing to do that. There's no argument to me about baptism. When I was baptized at the age of 16, it was because I was a Christian, I knew Jesus had said it, I believed it, and so I would do it. So he said, be baptized. And then he said, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was the Pentecostal formula. Repent of sin, acknowledge Jesus as Lord, be willing to die to yourself and make him Lord and receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? So exciting really you say you don't just do it once you keep on doing it there are things that I still have to repent about and I still need to go down and acknowledge Jesus as Lord in this that and the other situation I still need to open myself to receive renewings of the Holy Spirit so the Spirit was given on the basis of the cross I find the trouble is that we can seek one without the other. You see? There are times when I've wanted the Spirit to fill me. I haven't wanted the cross to humble me. No good. Other times I've, I've just emphasized the cross and being humbled, being broken, and not sought the Spirit. So I take the negative instead of the positive. You know, in any, every battery of a car, there's a, there's a negative terminal and a positive. The current flows in one and out the other. And it's like that. Sin goes out through the cross and the Holy Spirit comes in through the experience of the Spirit. There's got to be the positive and the negative. And we must have both. Because, you see, Jesus said, you shall receive the promise of the Father. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for all who believe. Well, why am I not filled with the Spirit? I want to close with this simple illustration. It's from Africa and uh, a very dry place, as you know. I was brought up there, so I ought to know. And uh, here's a, a church, Sunday school or something, crowds of children and uh, they're having a day off and they're very thirsty so the leaders line all the kids up and they're all going to have a drink so they've all got cups and they hold their cups and the people walk around with uh, great uh, water pots jugs pouring the water whatever it is into the cups they come to one little boy and he's standing there and the man looks into his cup and he says I can't give you this water why not? well look in your cup it's dirty. Look at the dirt in it. Here he is sitting with dirt in his cup, expecting the water. 
Well, you don't put tea or coffee in dirty cups, do you? That's why we wash up. That's why I have to wash up. Quite a bit of it. And I find this, that if you don't wash a cup up quickly when it's had tea or coffee in it, it gets stained and you've really got a job to get it clean. I know how domesticated I am now. But you know, our lives are like that. Our lives are vessels. We are just vessels for God to fill. And God wants to fill us. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to release the Spirit to fill us. But so often he looks into the cup and he says, I can't fill you. You've got bitterness in your cup. You've got jealousy in your cup. You've got pride in your cup. You've got unclean thoughts in your cup. You've got wrong desires in your cup. You've got selfishness in your cup. I can't fill your cup. How can he? How can he put that pure, beautiful water of the Holy Spirit as well in a dirty cup? It's got to be cleansing. So the Sunday school teacher told the little boy, go and clean your cup first, then I can fill it. So look into your cup this morning. Don't get introspective, but be real. Say, Lord, I do want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but there's, there's dirt in the cup. Are you willing to come to the cross with that cup? Because that's why Jesus died. I think the greatest thing that the Lord ever did was to die on the cross. It was greater than creation. There's a sense in which Calvary is greater than Pentecost because there would never have been a Pentecost without a Calvary. So the cleansing is all important. So bring your cup this morning as we close to Jesus. And you know what will happen? I found again and again, I don't need to ask for the Holy Spirit, I only seek for him. When I just repent of the dirt that's in my cup, God fills the cup. It just happens. Quietly, progressively, continually. Because that's his promise. Let's pray.